Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. So with less than two weeks out from the presidential elections in the U.S., we wanted to have the founders of one of our favorite independent media outlets, Status Coup, Jen Dyes and Jordan Cheriton on the show. They have been doing absolutely stellar work around the country during the pandemic to get the people's coverage of issues that really matter on the ground. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on the show. Thanks. For Thank you, guys. We're thrilled to be here. So before we really get started here, I wanted a quick reaction from the both of you about the debate last night. Uh, I thought it was really frustrating. Joe Biden, I felt like, missed a lot of easy slams on Trump on pretty much every issue. And while I was watching it, I just kept wishing that literally anyone else from the primary um, was up there fighting Trump on these things. What did you think, Jen? And let's go to you, Jordan. Who won? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I don't even know how to answer that question, (laughs) because it really does seem like we're coming from two parallel universe, maybe not even parallel universes, two completely different universes where Trump supporting people think he absolutely won. Biden supporting people think he absolutely won. Gun to my head. I think Biden won just because Trump didn't have his same feistiness. Trump did land a couple good hits, but Biden came across as the same candidate, I guess, with um, with marginally acceptable answers for the general American public. So I guess I'd have to say Biden. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Jordan? The biggest thing that kind of came to my mind, and it was deja vu because I, I was screaming during the debates between Bernie and other candidates and, and the one-on-one debate with Bernie and Biden, was just the missed opportunities. Um, particularly, I mean, I don't want Trump to win, but you know, Trump kind of forgot why he won in the first place. I, I, I'm still waiting for him to attack Biden on NAFTA and the TPP and these issues that are so critical and important to Midwest voters. Uh, Trump really like just marginally mentioned that Biden pushed NAFTA. Biden's been for every trade deal. Biden says he's for the workers, but has kind of, you know, sold them offshore, uh, sold them and their jobs offshore. Uh, Trump just keeps I mean, like Hunter Biden. Okay, nobody really cares. Uh, And so I think Trump missed a lot of opportunities. And, you know, if we weren't so fixated on uh, get Trump out, frankly, Biden said a lot of things that were cringeworthy. I mean, one thing he said I thought was revealing was uh, instead of the usual liberal line, uh, you know, health care is a human right. He said, you have you have a, a human right to affordable. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can't, something can't be a right if you have to pay for it. So uh, overall, I mean, Jen and I were uh, live Uh, after an hour. I kind of dozed off a little bit, but (laughs) you know, the bar is so low. I I would say that Trump not just self destroying himself. Like the first debate is kind of a win for Trump, but I don't really think it changed much uh, in the grand scheme. Yeah. I mean, Biden, that that part where he actually said affordable health care is a human right sounded just so strange to hear that come yes. out of his mouth. And I'm wondering if, I mean, is that a talking point that had been circulated before among some of these other Democratic primary candidates? Because I can't remember anyone actually saying that out loud. Uh, so, I yeah, I, I, I was very jarred by that um, as well. And, I mean, you, you, you mentioned, Jordan, that, that Trump failed to really lean into the things that got him elected in the first place. And I didn't really notice that until you mentioned it, but I'm wondering if that's maybe because Bannon 
is not really involved in his campaign this time around. Because some of those more smarter ideas of how to like reach the Midwest and stuff, I I, I believe kind of came from Bannon, like the the TPP stuff. I could be wrong about that, but that that was lacking this time around as well. And you know, I, I guess I mean, just from a you know a, a spectator point of view, is there any aspect of either of you guys while watching this where you're rooting? for Biden to get one over on Trump or is the cynicism so intense at this point where you don't even like feel that way? You're like, there's no part of you that even, you know, wants that to happen. Like what, what do you like, just from a spectator point of view, like how are you feeling while, you know, watching, watching this? I think for me, it's the latter. I just, I couldn't muster up any enthusiasm at all. I'm obviously not a fan of Joe Biden. I do hope he wins. I think he has to win. Trump is, a, a horrible monster um, in, in place of several other terms that I could use. But there wasn't any point where I was like, come on, Joe Biden, get him. You can get him, get him on this. It was just so not, I, I just wasn't into it. I couldn't bring myself to care. I, I think it goes basically to Joe Biden. If he said something that actually gave me a reason to root for him, uh, I would root for him. For example, I was tweeting, all right, half hour into the debate, nobody said a word that we're now at the three-month mark since this $600 unemployment expired. Like, unemployed people have gotten no federal help for three months. Biden didn't mention it. Trump didn't mention it. Of course, the moderator didn't mention it. They were just talking about the death counts and all that, which is important, obviously, but three months and nobody's had any help and it doesn't look like a deal's coming. So, you know, Biden didn't really give me anything to root for. I'm not, I can't root for Biden. I'm just rooting against Trump. That's kind of my mentality. Um, I also think that, you know, part of, part of you, it's, it's like this weird uh, mentality because I want Trump to lose. But then there's times when I kind of like some of the things he's saying. Like, I, I have to be honest, I liked what he was hitting Biden on the crime bill because I think the crime bill was a terrible thing. I wish Bernie would have hit Biden more on that, even though Bernie voted for it. I think he could have done it in a tactful way. Um, so even though I can't stand Trump, the, the progressive in me, I guess, kind of liked some of the attacks Trump was doing on Biden because they're true. Who built the cages, Joe? Yeah. Who built the cages, yeah. Joe? It's so funny that he kept asking it and didn't say it. Like, yeah. why, why didn't right. Trump just say, like, Obama? Obama built it. Like, he just kept saying, who built the cage? He even asked the moderator, like, several times, too. It was like. Yeah. Well, one, uh, being, you know, from the foreign policy point of view, I, it's just so cringeworthy to watch Joe Biden actually hammering Trump from the right over and over again about who can be more hawkish, who can hold, you know, Iran, China, all of these countries' feet to the fire, especially in when we're talking about a quote-unquote election interference, right? And making it seem like Trump has not done that through sanctions, through all of these atrocities that he's perpetrated through his term so far. So that really struck me, I think, from the debate was just the acceptance that we're this global military empire that needs to be, you know, imposing our will on all these other countries and really tough on countries like North Korea. And yeah, I did like how Trump said having good relationships with foreign leaders is a good thing, you know. So really quick takeaway, Jordan, then Jen, about the foreign policy angle from the debate. Well, I'd also mention, I mean, we're 
about to hit 20 years in Afghanistan didn't come up. So it's kind of like, I thought the foreign, I, I agree with what you said, uh, even though Trump is, you know, at least he hasn't started a new war, but he's not exactly a dove either. Um, I thought the foreign policy debate, if there was one, was pretty substance-less. Um, I also thought the moderator, uh, there was no uh, no questioning of Trump, like, doubling or tripling down on Obama's already unprecedented drone strikes, um, which I think is an important topic. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I think Biden, it, it's like the fracking thing. It's like, we're mm-hmm. supposed to cheer for him out being more right, <laughs> more to the right than Trump uh, when Biden was like, I love, you know, I'm for fracking and the liberal Twitter, you know, resistance moms and wine moms cheer. So yeah, I thought uh, the foreign policy debate was very lackluster. And I also think that, honestly, um, the China fear-mongering and anti, anti-Chinese fervor, who could be more hawkish against China, is also uh, dangerous. But obviously, the media helps to perpetuate that. Absolutely. I agree with you that the, the, the chatter about China, to me, is interesting in particular because it's almost like the Republicans and Trump have seen what the Democrats have done with Russiagate and with Russia and this new cold scare. So now they're kind of trying to do that with China and the Democrats. It's not really working out, but it was pretty darn substanceless. I, yeah, I got, I got nothing, no, no feelings either way about, you know, their, their hawkishness or not. And it actually surprises me that Trump hasn't gone more of the the Tucker Carlson kind of route where he's wooing people. Tucker's obviously a horrible person, not a good person, (laughs) but people do look to him because he's, he's not hawkish. And he reportedly has talked Trump out of, out of a couple bad hawkish, hawkish decisions. Um, But it surprises me that Trump hasn't gone more of that Tucker Carlson route because especially younger um, GOP voters seem to think that same way. They don't want these endless wars anymore. So I think maybe you're right, Robbie, when you were talking about Steve Bannon, how he had a hand in like the more populist sort of um, presentation. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, there is a notable lack of that sort of, that sort of fiery, you know, appealing, you know, whether they want to call it phony or not, that right wing populism that people like Tucker and Bannon were putting out there. Because we have to remember, Trump really gained a lot by running against the Bush era of, you know, whether he really believed it or not, running against the Iraq war era and running and sort of like running against the Bush era, you know, uh, in in 2016. And that was very powerful for him, even though it sort of disrupted a lot of the Republican Party. He's not carrying that same. Trump has sort of lost some of that fire. And and that's one of the things that I noticed, not just in his presentation, but sort of the ideas he was bringing to the table, repeating himself a lot, trying to out-hawk Biden on Russia by saying, you know, Obama and Biden sent pillows to Ukraine and he sent tank busters. Like Trump thinks that makes him look really tough. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if that's really going to gain him anything on in, in his sector either. So that, you know, the foreign policy thing was just, kind of a total joke. And I agree with what Jordan said that for the longest running war in U.S. history to not even be brought up in the debate. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. I wanted to move on to just, you know, you, Jordan, I've seen you going out a lot um, doing like in the field interviews with people about the pandemic, 
especially a lot of Trump supporters are discussing with them, uh, you know, how they're taking precautions during the pandemic and how they feel about it, which is it's just really cool to see you out, out doing that. But when this when the situation first started, I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of vindication at first for not just Bernie's policies and platforms, but just the idea of a socialist you know, shift in this country. It was very obvious that we needed universal health care, supplemental income, better medical infrastructure in general. And then suddenly, you know, all we're faced with as a response is lockdowns and one $1,300 check. And that's it. So America was at least for a moment seen nakedly as this failed state. Um, but now the topic of recovery is mostly just focused on the economy, not the people. And has become just this back and forth partisan blame game. I mean, how do you feel about the way that that's been sort of just turned so polarized so quickly? And who do you feel is the most to blame? Um, I think, you know, I have kind of this is my full circle. I started covering Trump in 2015. So um, the comparison between the rallies I saw in 2016, which like on the bet, batshit meter, I guess you could say, was a mm-hmm. 7 out of 10. Uh, it's now a 12 out of 10. <laughs> part yeah. of that, I think part of that is, um, it's not just that these people live in an alternative reality. It, it's kind of the culmination of like the 20-year Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, add on Breitbart, you know, Infowars, 4chan, now QAnon. It's kind of like the right-wing media and the digital right-wing sphere has been so successful of even making life or death issues into culture wars. I mean, look at the mask issue, which is the most ridiculous thing. I mean, literally, if Trump wore a mask from day one, said like, you know, make America mask again, every single one of them would be wearing a mask, no questions asked. And they'd be attacking anyone who wasn't wearing a mask as like a a socialist. I mean, it's it's all... It, it, it really is. I mean, I hate to be so simplistic. A lot of it's just people are brainwashed. I mean, I love my father, but him too. I mean, he's not a COVID truther, but he loves Trump. And um, it, it's scary because honestly, when I'm out covering these things, I'm not really so we're fit. I'm not worried that much about my physical safety. I'm just worried seeing the venom in these people's eyes, seeing yeah. the the hate coming out of their mouths, not just racism, but like I was covering a rally two days ago in New York, a giant Trump flag rally. And there's just, I don't know, 40 year old women without masks screaming, you know, this is our streets, you know, F Antifa, this and that. And it's like, you realize, I'm realizing this doesn't end even if Trump loses. The genie's out of the bottle, whether it's QAnon, Proud Boys, all of this, it, it's not going anywhere. And um, I don't know what the answer is, but I will say, I don't think it's just Trump uh, who has cultivated it. I think it's, you know, this culmination of, you know, 20 years when you're talking about the advent of Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and then you add on, you know, the Tea Party of the last decade. All of this here, these people at their root have been conditioned to be afraid that somebody's taking their country, the country that they knew and loved away from them. And that's what I've seen on the road because you have to be crazy during a deadly pandemic not to do every single thing you can to protect yourself. And all of these people are out without masks. 
It was really scary when I, so I, I was in Portland a few weeks ago and there was a big Proud Boys rally there. And right before I arrived, the Proud Boys were literally beating up journalists that they didn't want to be there. So I went in pretending to be like-minded. Um, I even wore like an American flag shirt just so I would kind of blend in. Um, they definitely, they grilled me with a bunch of questions to, to vet me, um, before, before letting me in, I put on a, a ditzy act and thankfully I was, was able to stay, but on the, the mask issue, I, as soon as I started, um, interviewing one of the, the main vetters of the Proud Boys. So they, there's this extensive process with the Proud Boys where there are four different steps as you're initiated and people are vetted beforehand. So this was one of the, the top guys in, in the Proud Boys. And he immediately said, take your mask off. You don't need your mask. And so in order to blend in, I pulled my, I had to pull my mask down. So I would like, I, cause my, my safety physically was dependent on, on doing that. So I think that, and then our, our other Trump rallies that we've reported from and the questions we've asked them, I agree 100% with Jordan that it is, it is much scarier now than it was in 2016. Obviously talking to Trump supporters in 2016 was, was eye-opening and disturbing in its own way. But now here in 2020, there's a lot more violence. There's a lot more vitriol. Uh, and there's a lot more people who are completely out of touch with reality. These people, the Proud Boys, and also, you know, in air quotes, the, the typical regular Trump supporter, they're operating from an entirely different set of facts. And they and Robbie, I know you've done extensive uh, coverage on QAnon, but that's one of the things too that stuck out. Every Trump supporter that I ask about TrueAnon, at least says, "Yeah, I think a lot of it's true." If not, if they're not completely full in, it's scary. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I notice about the the video spots you guys were doing is that. I mean, it was just to me, like Jordan said, it's the culmination of all this stuff over the last twenty years. But really clear illustration of how the QAnon narrative, as I understand it, is almost indistinguishable now from just regular Trump movement, like general belief yeah. system. And and in Jordan's interview spots, I was just like, wow, damn, these people are basically full on QAnon, even if they're not wearing like Q shirts at this point. And that's that really struck me, I think, because that's a big difference between 2016 and now. Yeah. I also think it goes back to what you said, Robbie. Um, I think if Steve Bannon or one of these kind of like white nationalist types was running the helm, they would be telling Trump to tailor focus to the blue collar people, not the blue, not the blue lives matter people, not the QAnon people. I, I don't know who's advising Trump to just go towards the conspiracy angle. Um, you know, his campaign manager is Bill Stepien, who was like, Chris Christie's consigliere in Bridgegate. He used to work for Chris Christie. He's kind of a traditional establishment GOP guy. But yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know who's telling Trump that it 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 benefits him to, you know, just dog whistle and, you know, stay back, stand back to the Proud Boys, uh, because obviously it's just awful in moral terms, but it's it's just politically dumb. Um, he's alienating people. But that base um, you know, they've been looking for a, a fearless leader to kind of 
make them feel more se secure in their white fragility. And that's what Trump is. The poor boys. The poor boys. Yeah. I like how people were like, oh, did you the see him di do a dig on the Proud Boys? It's like, no, he did that on mis by mistake. What are you talking right. about? <laughs> but it does seem like over the last couple of years, QAnon has exploded. My brother was covering this um, right when Pizzagate kind of transitioned into QAnon. But now more and more friends of friends of mine, especially because L.A. kind of has this new age, you know, the secret theme where people are into like alternative medicine and stuff like that. And, and this seems to be exploding in many, many circles, crossing the barrier of just Republicans and Trump supporters at this point. And that's what's really scary to me. It's a completely viral conspiracy that is garnering astounding levels of support. And of course, the end all be all of this is that Trump is saving us from this pedophile ring. Um, I, I don't know if you guys saw that town hall where Trump was asked point blank about one, you know, QAnon, where again, he was like, I know they hate pedophilia. I still don't know much about him, but I know they hate pedophilia. Yeah. And then the other question, which I found just shocking, was why does he retweet just batshit insane conspiracies like Biden is the one who was responsible for the SEAL Team 6 helicopter crash to cover oh up the God, fake yeah. death of Bin Laden. He was like, it's a retweet. It was a retweet. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, when you guys are talking to these people, you know, I don't think people realize who aren't plugged in enough about how much like this is honed in on like a war against the left. You know, all of this is kind of premised on fear-mongering, fomenting the civil war against leftists. And I think that that really, really scares me. Um, and also just, you know, aside from the Trump fanatics and how just crazy and detached from reality they are, I mean, if you wanted to comment any more on that, but also like give us a snapshot of what rural America is like on the ground, because you know, people are suffering right now. And I don't know how plugged in the vast majority of people who we're not talking about are into U.S. politics right now. Um, Jordan and Jen, if you guys want to comment on that. One thing that sticks out in my mind was when we were reporting in Wisconsin. So this was during the, the Democratic Convention, which we, we went to, even though it was virtual. There were protesters there, but there was also a Trump rally that was um, parallel to this. So we went to the Trump rally to interview people there. And on the way, we stopped at this super rural gas station. Um, and as I was checking out this, this really, really nice uh woman working behind the counter. She was asking about our journalism and she was so excited and, and, and thought it was great. And then as I turned to leave, she said, so are you going to vote for Trump or do you like Trump? And I turned to her and I said, no, I, I don't personally. And the look on her, her face fell like she was really sad about it. And she was just kind of like, oh, so I, I say that because it was kind of representative to me of people who may not be totally tuned in to politics, but are, are living in difficult conditions. I, I assume this, this person, this woman doesn't make a lot of money working at the checkout. Um, and she's probably, I didn't interview her, but she's probably been sold on the lie that Trump is like the savior that they've been waiting for all this time. And it's, so you have the, the people who, who are tuned in and brainwashed, and then you have these other people who 
who just think, you know, oh, he's not a politician. He's he's our answer. Finally, he's our answer. And these are good people. I think one of the things that that people don't get on the left is that not everybody who's voting for Trump is an evil demon. These people, a lot of them truly, even even people and maybe especially people in QAnon or who believe in QAnon, they truly believe that they're going to save the world. They truly believe that they're fighting against this evil cabal that's eating babies and um, and a bunch of pedophiles. And, you know, they, they truly think that, you know, Huma and Hillary are spirit cooking with children's blood and adrenochrome or whatever's going on <laughs> in their minds. But they, they think it's real. And they truly think that they are on the side of good. And I, I, again, I think that's something leftists don't understand often is that these, there are so many good people who are sucked into this, who are sucked into voting for Trump and believing that Trump is their savior. One thing that I've done a lot of digging into is the religious, the evangelical support for Trump and, and how that works psychologically. Cause I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by these people, but they, they aren't necessarily bad. They are very likely brainwashed in a lot of cases. So I don't know. I don't think I can even break down, you know, a typical rural mindset, except for they're totally lost in this. They're absolutely lost in thinking that Trump is the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I've seen, because we kind of did a, um, uh, we called it the COVID depression reporting trip. So we kind of went through New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Louisville, and um, and then Milwaukee, like Jen said. And a lot of people I've interviewed, not just on Trump, but Black Lives Matter, um, at the kind of DNC shadow convention. I mean, there were like 20 yellow vest protesters there. Um, <laughs> the, honestly, I'm getting a lot more feedback from, you know, both pe- white people, black people, uh, that the answer might lie outside of electoral politics, talking a lot yeah. more about um, we need to stop only focusing on running candidates and midterms and, you know, pre- presidential. But we need to do, you know, more talk about, you know, kind of the general strike idea, economic mm-hmm. economic boycotts, um, basically kind of getting to a point of um, apathy that, you know, the system is rigged in a way that it's always going to be this way. It's always going to be rigged primaries, lesser of two evils, Democrat versus, you know, the worst Republican. Um, so we need to figure out a way to uh, pressure the capitalist system uh, to force the politicians uh, beyond just voting. Because I always hate the term like, you know, Obama, don't boo, vote or, you know, just vote. Yeah, well, we have voted yeah. and look what's happened. So mm-hmm. um, that I'm getting quite a lot more. And the other thing I've gotten from, you know, interviews in person, you know, over Skype is just people are in dire straits and you really don't see it talked about that much. You you see in media kind of the coverage of the horse race between Pelosi and Mnuchin and McConnell and will it happen before the election and both sides are, you know, don't want to cave. But there's like not that many stories um, on the food lines <laughs> that are expanding all over the country. I'm going tomorrow to cover in Queens. There's a public housing apartment uh, that literally has had no gas for a month. People are delivering hot meals because they they have no gas. Meanwhile, you know, during the pandemic, I, th- I think the number was billionaires have expanded their wealth by like $650 billion. 
So it's these things are happening kind of like all over the country. And I, I just say, I just look and of course, CNN's never going to cover this. But every other country that actually kind of cares about its people, Europe, they're the government's just covering payrolls. Simple. People yep. aren't on unemployment. Got, you know, they, they print money just like we print money. They're covering payrolls and their their main focus is actually killing the virus. They don't think in terms of like, you know, we got to focus on the economy equal because they realize, well, the economy, there is no economy if you don't stop the virus. Um, not that all European countries have been perfect, but we easily could have done that. I mean, look, I mean, Abby, you know, how much money do we print print for war? So mm-hmm. we could have done that. Nobody had to be on unemployment. Um, so yeah, people are in dire straits. The stories that I've heard, you know, if I put out a tweet, like call out, send me your unemployment story or tell me, you know, are how long have you been un- unemployed? I, I've just flooded by DMs uh, of desperate people. And it's, it's really a travesty. And the, the worst part is the cognitive dissonance. Cause while this is going on, like resistance, Twitter, their main, pro- their main thing they're upset about is like the latest Russia gate faux scandal. So it's outrageous. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see Obama's uh, speech stumping for Biden the other day and how tired he seemed and how he was talking about the Russian bounties on the American soldiers in Afghanistan. That drives me insane. It just, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of strange actually that Obama's probably he's, he's talked about Russiagate the least out of like all the people from his cabinet. So it's just odd to hear him mentioning such a tired Lincoln projecty talking point. Why is Bernie Sanders at 70, 79 years old barnstorming the country during a deadly pandemic more than President Obama? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. I, I mean, it is insane. And maybe it also speaks to Obama. I mean, we've heard so many leaks of him actually not wanting Biden to run. I mean, maybe that's, maybe there's a lot of truth to that. You, you guys have been, you know, covering a lot of aspects of the pandemic and, and how people feel about it. And one thing that really, really frustrates me is similar to the free speech issue in the Trump era. I feel that the sort of the civil liberties implication of the pandemic response has been mostly hijacked by the right in this, you know, sort of disingenuous and petty way. I mean, petty, the mask issue, the mask debate seems totally manufactured and unnecessary. But one debate that I do feel like, you know, is sort of valid to have is this idea of indefinite lockdowns and essentially forcing businesses into, you know, not being able to operate for an indefinite period of time. And when this all first started, you know, a lot of the more liberal leaning media outlets were sort of shaming you know, people who wanted to reopen or who wanted to, you know, kind of rebel against lockdowns. And now I'm even seeing in the Bay Area, liberals, very liberal left people who are now demanding the same thing because all the sort of different counties and cities have their different rules and on different timelines of when things can reopen. And things have become very confusing. Um, And part of that's deliberate because Trump sort of let the states and all these different, you know, ordinances do things on their own, in their own way, partially to feed into that chaos. But it's an issue that I feel really torn about. And I wish there was a more intelligent discussion being had about the civil liberties implications. Because one kernel of truth that Trump said is that like, the response to the virus can actually be worse than the virus itself. How do you guys feel about that general concept? And do you think 
that the lack of intelligent debate about this, the civil liberties implications of this, is just a byproduct of how weaponized and polarized politics is at this current moment? I'm really conflicted, uh, just like you say. I, I, I think I probably have a different take on this than you, Jordan. So I'm curious to see what you'll say. But I think that there ha- there does have to be a balance. You know, at some point, the way things are, you know, right now, where where I am, they even have indoor seating now, which I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with. Uh, the outdoor seating, I'm more comfortable with. I wish people would take more precautions, you know, spraying things down before the next person and all that, which restaurants are doing. But um, I think everybody could take more individual responsibility, too. So on the one hand, we are a country that historically doesn't like certain things forced upon us. So while I don't agree with it, I see what the, what conservatives are saying about being forced to do things and not to do other things. Um, but for the common good, I think these lockdowns are important for right now with the limited openings and the safer openings. I absolutely disagree with having children physically in school right now. I think that's ridiculous. Um, I, but I don't know. I, I do think it opens up a lot of a lot of questions and people are just so deep into their side, their point of view. So it's interesting, Robbie, that you say that even some of the liberals are kind of getting tired of it now where you are in the Bay Area. Um, I don't know. Business owners I, I mostly think... is, is what I've heard of, of who, oh, who I've heard okay. from. Yeah, like people who own salons and sort of businesses that aren't, you know, essential services. Um, are now getting really, you know, they're they're just getting really frustrated. I think the longer this this goes on. Well, like Jordan, your parents own the, the jewelry store, and like without being able to open on a limited basis, that would be dire for them to not be able to open at all. Right. I actually feel very strongly about this. I'm not torn. I don't blame the business owners. I blame the government. And it goes back to what I said. If we did not live in the United Corporations of America, which is what I call it, we would have done the obvious thing in March and April. And honestly, I don't even know if Biden would have done this, even though he's more sane than Trump. We would have done what China did and just literally one uniform lockdown, not different states do different things because, you know, the virus, you know, if you don't lock down travel between states, if you don't lock down everything and have one federal policy for at least 30 days, that is how you kill a deadly airborne virus. Trump didn't do it because it was an election year. The donors, Wall Street, didn't want him to do it, so he didn't do it. But that, we didn't actually have a one uniform lockdown. We had different states doing different things, with still with travel going between states. If we would have done that, and frankly, it probably would have been a little longer than 30 days, we would be like China right now. They, I mean, their cases are way, way lower than ours. I mean, to the point, and, and their contact tracing is way, way better than ours. And your hospitals wouldn't have been overrun like they were in the beginning if you would have just locked down the country. But with that lockdown has to be companies, payroll is covered by the government, uh, a, a just forgiveness on not just rent, but uh, mortgages, those kind of things. Because if you don't pay your rent, well, not every landlord is a slumlord, you know, dirtbag. They have to pay their mortgages. You know, everything should have froze to stop the virus. And yes, there would have been civil libertarians that 
didn't like it. But honestly, I kind of look at it the same way I do the Second Amendment. Your right to a gun is not greater than my right or my children's right not to get their head blown off in schools, right? So, you know, yes, there's a balance of civil libertarians, but if the government would have done the obvious thing, just print the money, this time not for war, take a pause from that, but for uh, small businesses, gig workers, uh, working class people, just pay, cover their salaries, stay home, um, only essential workers like food delivery, you know, nurses, doctors, um, we would have not, there would have been one curve. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but there would have been one big curve and then it would have been flattened. Sure, there would be many upswings. Of course, there would be more death, but not like we're, for God's sakes, they were holding primaries during a pandemic. Think about how insane that yeah. is. Which, by the way, Biden was encouraging when it was politically convenient yep. for him. So, yeah, I think I don't blame the business owners that you're talking about, Robbie. Um, they have to live. And I like I'm not going to lie. You know, my wife and I occasionally get into arguments because she is rightly concerned about me traveling. I know, you know, Jen has children um, and she's worried about me and possibly I might recontract coronavirus because I had it. And. Be, as, be, a, be, as, be asymptomatic and give it to her. She might go to see her parents who are a little older. So I don't blame business owners. I blame the government for not providing for the people in an extraordinary emergency situation. See, I agree with you on what we should have done. I'm coming at this from an angle of like, what do we do now? Now that it's all been screwed up, now that Trump is so dramatically screwed up and led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. Let me throw this into the, the the mix because let's say Biden wins and let's say that he does follow through on some kind of, you know, he, he didn't say this in the debate last night and people are still sort of wondering if he'll do this. But let's just say in theory he does a mandatory federal mask mandate of some kind and some kind of new round of top down federal lockdowns, you know, obviously with some kind of supplemental income or covering payroll, that would be far more acceptable. But that seems almost inconceivable to me that they would do both. Now, let's say, you know, how how could you guys see that playing out? Like, what if, you know, what if they don't cover that, but they are sort of forcing a new round of lockdowns federally this time around? That seems really problematic to me. And I just want to know how you guys would, would feel about something like that playing out. I think it would really rile up the right-wing militias. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, I, I wish... I think there's a better chance of me developing a six pack by the end of the year than Joe Joe Biden um, offering to cover payrolls, UBI. I think you'll be lucky if maybe you'll get like expanded Cobra, which was ridiculous that Pelosi. (laughs) Uh, I think, you know, Biden might propose similar to President Obama did during the crash, like a stimulus, maybe one point five trillion where like two thirds of it is tax cuts and, you know, these kind of you know, trim around the edges types of things. But let's say, Robbie, if he did do what you just suggested, um, I think it's too late because I think, like Jen said, uh, you know, the well has been poisoned. The masks have been a culture, become a culture war. So yeah. the right wing will not, even if, let's say, even if these right wing uh, MAGA people and it's President Biden, even if they're made economically whole, let's say, and they're getting some form of UBI or, you know, their jobs are covered by the government. I still think they would riot because, again, the masks have been made into a culture war and symbolic. Almost. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's like the symbol of tyranny to the right wing, which is just absolutely ludicrous. And that's one thing that I thought Biden really failed at the debate again. For the second time, he was unable to articulate what he would actually do differently in terms of policy. All he could say was, uh, I don't even know what the fuck he said. Definitely wasn't memorable. But he definitely did not articulate policy differences. In fact, Trump slammed back at him being like, I've done all the things that you're saying. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's like if he has this mandatory mask mandate that he's wanting to roll out, he certainly didn't talk about it. He just said, I would recommend everyone wear masks. It's just like, holy shit, what is going on here? Um, and you mentioned this mantra, vote, 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 vote or die, right? Uh, one thing that it you know rings true is just like the Black Lives Matter uprising and how many protests have been taking place across towns with Democratic mayors and Democratic governances like city councils that are all Democratic. So it's like when you're looking at this national uprising, which I know that Status Quo has covered quite a bit as well, that has been coinciding with the pandemic, there's also this extremely polarized reaction to it. Uh, the Democrats play you know, pay lip service to it while still making clear that they support the cops. Biden has made it clear that he does not support the call to defund the police. Trump, like I said before, is almost running on this point of restoring law and order from the looting, from the violent anarchists, sending mass texts to his lists about Antifa coming to your neighborhood. Yes. Like that's really fucking crazy. Um, and then there's this response from the supporters, from all of the agitators to every police killing where the swaths of right-wingers literally justify murder. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, what criminal background does this guy have? I'm talking about, it seems like there's this new wave of openly fascist, and maybe that's just because it's been emboldened so much by Trump. We know that rhetoric does have consequences, right? But like these car rammings and all of these things that are happening, like the Kyle Rittenhouse stuff, uh, Jen, what you were saying about like these alternate versions of reality where I feel like I'm literally living in a different reality than all of these other people when I look at these events play out. I don't even know if I have a question here, but if you guys have any comment on any of that, Jen, what do you think? It is really. We were, again, back in Wisconsin, there was uh, a time where the, there were counter protesters where this Trump rally was and there were two girls who were standing and two counter protesters, um, Black Lives Matter, you know, marchers who were standing in front of this decked out Trump truck. And the, the Trump, the people in the Trump truck were really ready to just run them right over. It was a really, really tense moment. Thankfully, that ended OK, but it's happening all over the place. There was the, the, the horrible um, images and, and news stories. I think it was in Seattle where two Black Lives Matter protesters were run over and one was flung high into the air and died. And it, there's just so many horrible stories. Of course, Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, I, going back to the different realities thing, especially in terms of Kyle Rittenhouse, the people who believe that he's 100% okay with what he did. He's totally justified. All you have to do is, is switch Kyle Rittenhouse's color and their opinion, you know, if he were a black man, their opinion on, on the right here would, would immediately change. They, they don't really have convictions except for when it suits their, their purposes. I think it's almost indescribable what's, what's happening 
And one thing I always try to do is figure out where the psychology of, of people, like, why are they thinking this way? Why are they doing these things? How can they be so think so differently from other Americans? And I don't have any answers. I, I find it horrific, horrifically fascinating. Um, I don't know where there's going to be an end, even if Trump loses, which I hope he does these people are still going to be living in their alternate reality and they're still going to be going after Black Lives Matter protesters. They're still going to be going after anybody who doesn't fit in their narrative. And I'm sure they're going to say the election was stolen and so they'll be even more emboldened. Yeah, I agree with a lot, with a lot of that. I also think there's another angle and Abby, I mean, your work speaks for itself on just exposing America's fascist actions all around the world. But I have to say, I mean, I've been around the country quite a bit before Trump, mm -hmm. and I don't remember resistance Twitter saying anything during Standing Rock. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't particularly remember, you know, these MSNBC, uh, you know, vultures, uh, Nicole Wallace or Rachel Maddow or any of these people, you know, when Native Americans were getting shot at and, you know, environmental activists. Uh, Ferguson, you know, Michael Brown protest. Um, it's and you even see it during uh, these this last few months. Look at Portland, for example. All of a sudden, Democratic politicians are outraged because President Trump has sent the military in and, you know, uh, federal officials to Portland to do horrible things. Um, you know, unmarked vans uh, pulling protesters and um, tear gas and all of the rubber bullets. When the federal troops leave and it's just Portland police doing those same exact things under a Democratic mayor, crickets. Same thing in Seattle, same thing in Los Angeles where you, you are. I mean, literally, the police under many Democratic cities have been out of control, really, the entire history of America. But let's just look at the last. Let's go to Rodney King and, and thereafter. Um, and it's happened, you know, with impunity under Republican uh, local officials, but also Democratic mayors. I mean, Ted Wheeler in Portland, the mayor of Portland, came out as like some sign of, you know, I'm with you with the protesters. And they basically, you know, chased him off because he's been allowing the police to do these heinous things. But the thing is, the Democratic Party, you know, obviously we've established Trump and what he is stoked and that violence. But the Democratic Party, I remember it like yesterday. I'm at Standing Rock basically on and off for six months. I mean, most Democratic Party politicians said nothing. Then all of a sudden, Obama denies the permit and you're getting mini Wachoni emails from Donna, Donna Brazil and Elizabeth Warren. And all these people are suddenly like no dapple because Obama gave the go ahead. I mean, this is the problem. And even when Biden, if and when Biden becomes president, um, you know, it, on on the, on the progressive end, we kind of went to sleep under Obama. I don't think that's going to happen under Biden, but I do think these resistance wine moms, as has been going around, and the resistance in general is going to go back to brunch. They're not going to the care brunch about crowd. Yep, they're not going to care about police under a President Biden doing these things. Maybe if it's a high profile thing like George Floyd, yeah, we'll have two weeks of protests. It'll be wall to wall coverage, and then they'll move on. And nothing will change. So I think that the uh, selective outrage and the selective um, 
uh, selective resistance based on if it's Trump versus Democrats doing it is, speaks for itself. Uh, you're 100% right. And they haven't, these resistance Twitter people haven't learned a single thing. There is a widely circulated tweet the other day saying, what are we going to tweet about after Trump's out of office? Oh, yeah. And it's like, are you, are you kidding? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. What is wrong Jesus with you? Well, that's even what, that was even sort of the weirdest, uh, one of the weirdest uh, elements of Obama's little stump speech for Biden. One of the core messages of it was essentially... We want to have someone in the presidency who's just going to make us like not worry and like argue so much about things like with our friends and family. We just don't want to be like as stressed out every day by like arguing about politics. And that to me, that has a similar flavor to it, that that tweet you're talking about, Jen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like even yeah. Biden said, <laughs> we're we're this election is about the character of our country. That's all they have. And, and I guess that's the most glaring thing. But, you know, the idea that it's just this resistance is so hypocritical because of the way they acted during the Obama administration is definitely true. But I also like to think back to the Bush era, like Michael Moore got booed at the Academy Awards when he went on a, sp a rant about Bush being a fictitious president, starting a fictitious war for fictitious reasons. I mean, that was the same Hollywood class that rallies behind every Black Lives Matter protest now. Nobody t from Hollywood talked about all the people being rounded up into warehouses during the 2004 RNC. I mean, there was m extreme police brutality against protesters back then during the Bush era, and Hollywood was c mostly totally silent. So, I mean, it just, it just seems like they're like four or five years on a delay of like what is actually being truly progressive. Now, I hate using that term. It feels so tainted now, but... Yeah, I agree. They're they're behind so much. Even now, like resistance Twitter, in in some cases, they support Medicare for all. Finally, like <laughs> they are. They're five years behind. I think you're absolutely right. And I'll also mention, uh, Jen. I think you saw this, but like Alyssa Milano, who was like the the godmother uh, of the Me Too movement. <laughs> she was the godmother godmother of the Me Too movement. Hashtag Believe Women and all that. Um, but then when Biden was accused, all of a sudden. Okay, we let her have her, we, you know, she said her piece, but like, you don't have to believe it. So like that <laughs> kind of changed on a dime. Like there's no consistency with any of these principles when it's, whether it's police brutality, uh, sexual assault, uh, harassment, uh, military industrial complex, you know, look at, look at fracking. I mean, literally there are people cheering that Biden is talking about being for the very um, extraction method that is worse than carbon dioxide. I mean, methane is worse than carbon dioxide, all the research shows. So it's just really, I think, it's one word, tribalism. Tribalism is, is killing us both on the right and the left. Well, you know what? On the Alyssa Milano topic, this is a little bit of a side note, but not much of one. When we, Jordan and I uh, had a story published about Flint in Vice back in April, and this essentially showed that the Governor Snyder, the then Governor of Michigan, knew about what was to come um, related to Legionella and, and the deaths that were eventually going to come, but he sat on it and um, on and on. So it was a really, really important story. And Alyssa had, we'd contacted her with a previous story and she retweeted it um, to do with Flint. This time she got back to us and said, basically the, the gist was that a, a Democrat in Michigan told her, like a, a 
a politician in Michigan told her, now's not a good time. So she said she couldn't share it. So there's no conviction there. It is just, it's a club. <laughs> yeah. We could do a whole hour on the people uh, that have refused to cover uh, our Flint stories, including major media outlets who wouldn't, wouldn't touch it unless we could connect it to Trump. And look at, speaking of Michael Moore, when Michael Moore simply just pointed out how absurd it was that Joe Biden took the endorsement of Governor, Governor Snyder and turned his back on the people of Flint yet again. Um, uh, you saw Resistance Twitter just totally attacking him, being like, this fat bastard, like, fuck you, Michael Moore, like, you fucking turncoat, you want Trump to win? And it's like, dude, what, what are you guys talking about? Like, yeah. he is stating facts. How do you not understand what is going on? How do you not understand what happened in Flint? How do you not understand how awful it looks, just optics of Joe Biden taking this goddamn endorsement? Like, have you not learned anything? And, and the thing is, they really have not. They really have not yeah. learned anything. And they are continuing to use the same 2016 playbook. It's just absolutely mind boggling. Uh, you know, it is it is one hell of a drug, this party partisan bullshit and the tribalism that we see just over and over again. Um, and yeah, even when you criticize Joe Biden, you know, people come down on you and they're just like, well, he's the best we have. Like, well, that that's who we have to fight Trump. It's like, yeah, but he is horrible. He is right wing. Right. Like, you know, we can't just talk about these things like Jesus Christ. And I think that brings us to the point where we it's not going to be easy to push these people left, quote unquote, unless you have mass movements in the streets. Um, pushing policies, you know, so it's just this pipe dream of electoralism, this pipe dream of even having insurgent candidates like the squad, you know, it puts people's faith into electoralism. And, and they just go push a button every four years and think that you don't need to do the work day to day in the streets. And that's really what it all comes down to. I know that you guys know that really, really briefly. Um, I, I wanted to Jordan, you to explain the Breonna Taylor case and what status coup's investigation and coverage of this was, because I hear a lot of people speak um, incorrectly about this. And this was, of course, one of the um, sparks of the BLM protests nationwide. So I wanted you to talk about Breonna Taylor and just the injustice of the culmination of the investigation officially. Yeah, I mean, if we weren't in a pandemic, 11 days from the election and all these other things, I think it would be leading the news because literally the attorney general of Kentucky was just caught like cover in a cover up. <laughs> I mean, the whole yeah. thing is a massive government. It's kind of like an amateur cover up. He didn't really cover his tracks. So from the start, obviously, Brianna Taylor, a 26 year old a nurse, uh, she was treating coronavirus patients, um, sleeping in bed with her boyfriend in March. Um, there was a no-knock warrant. They, the police, I mean, it's, the police weren't responsible for the warrant. They were executing the warrant, but they believe that she might be associated or hiding uh, as a hiding spot for a local alleged drug dealer. So in the middle of the night, 1230, they quote unquote uh, um, announced themselves and use a battering ram to intrude into their apartment. Uh, Kenneth Walker, he, he's her boyfriend, it happens to be black. You know, I guess it's only don't tread on me, shoot to kill if you're white. Um, you know, he was sleeping. He's with his girlfriend and these cops barge in. He didn't even know they were police because it's the middle of the night. They're waking up. So he shot at them, you know, scared that this is somebody trying to do my girlfriend and I harm. 
and the police emptied their chambers. I think there were like 30 to 40 shots. Uh, Brianna was shot seven to eight times, I believe. Uh, bullets going in other apartments uh, than Brianna's. Um, and initially, the district attorney, the local district attorney, was going to take the case, but it was moved to the attorney general of Kentucky uh, because the district attorney had conflicts and was kind of a deadbeat. Uh, but the problem is the district, the Kentucky attorney general is like a rising star in the Republican Party. He spoke at the RNC. He's happened to happens to be black. Uh, Jen, you might know, but I think he's somehow related to Mitch McConnell. I think he's married to somebody in Mitch McConnell's family. So this guy was in charge who gave a very MAGA speech at the RNC of justice for Breonna Taylor. Well, the charges came out recently and no first degree murder, no second degree murder, no manslaughter, something called wanton, wanton endangerment, which has a maximum in Kentucky of five years in jail for one of the officers involved. There were three officers involved and the greatest insult to injury, the charge against this one officer wasn't related at all to the killing of Breonna Taylor. They charged him with wanted endangerment for the bullets that went into the apartment next to Brianna Taylor, which happened to be a white family. It just came out because a judge ordered uh, that the grand jury can speak. Obviously, grand jury is usually secret. The grand jury revealed that Daniel Cameron, the attorney general, lied. He said that the grand jury agreed with him. Grand jury, two grand jury members said he didn't even give us the option of deliberating on first degree second degree, or manslaughter. The wow. only options the grand jury had was the wanton, wanton endangerment. Uh, the Kentucky Attorney General also, he's either lying or he's incompetent and doesn't know the law. He said that um, the officers that shot and killed Breonna Taylor can't be charged because um, they were under Kentucky law. It was self-defense because Kenneth Walker shot at the officers. However, Kentucky law, which I've painstakingly read, um, you can, they could do self-defense for shooting at Kenneth Walker. It, you can't claim self-defense shooting at a th shooting and killing at a third party that was not threatening you. So they couldn't declare self-defense against Breonna Taylor, but somehow the attorney general said they can't be charged because self-defense. And the last thing real quick, he also claimed that there was an one eyewitness that confirmed that the police did announce themselves as police. Well, there was 12 eyewitnesses there that said they didn't. And the one that he cited that did say, uh, I heard them say they were police, they had to bring in three times because the first two times he said he didn't. So they basically got this guy or girl to change their story. So the whole thing, massive cover up. Frankly, if you watch his speech at the RNC, he's got higher, uh, higher aspirations and it's an insult. Uh, Jen and I were there. I interviewed uh, Brianna Taylor's aunt. And it's just, it's horrific. Think about it. This this 26-year-old was saving lives. She was 24-7 coronavirus at the time, at the hospital, treating patients and sleeping in bed. She's murdered. No justice. Wasn't there something about them changing the story about him even shooting back? Yeah, the, the story changed like, three or four times. Yeah. Basically, if you listen to the 911 call, which is horrible, Kenneth Walker, her boyfriend's call, um, he clearly didn't know it was police. He clearly was in shock. And it's not even, honestly, it's not even clear if any of his, if any of his bullets actually hit the police. 
it might have been the police officers that were uh, wounded. It might have been their own friendly fire hitting themselves. Um, I mean, it's just if you if you really follow the case, uh, the attorney general not only lied, but he misstated the law. Uh, the governor of Kentucky now, who happens to be a Democrat, is demanding that he release all evidence, notes. Uh, it might, frankly, be overturned on, a, on appeal um, because the case is just extremely clear. The other the other issue, and I know we don't have much time, is why were they there in the first place? Mm-hmm. She was not a drug dealer. She had no criminal record. If you felt the need to question her about potential ties to an alleged drug dealer, could have brought her in like they would have brought me, a white dude, in in the middle of the day. So it's the race, the racial aspect of it. This they went into a, a woman's home in the middle of the night with no criminal record, and. I don't know if somebody uses a battering ram in my home, I might shoot them. So it's just the whole thing is really disgusting. And unfortunately, the lack of video, I think if there was video, it would have had the same effect that George Floyd had. I think you would have seen protests in the streets for weeks. Yeah. And the the family said it wasn't until Ahmaud Arbery's death and and that family helped, uh, boost the Brianna Taylor story because the family was trying, Brianna's family was trying to get this story out there and, and, and make people care. And it didn't take off until the Arbery family um, helped out with that. And I think one, one thing that really, apart from the awful corruption and, and Jordan, I don't remember if you mentioned this, but they also released this police report that said there were no injuries on Brianna, which is obviously false. So the, the whole thing is just corrupt top to bottom. But something that humanizes uh, even more, because I think these cases, there are so many of them. And it um, it can be, it's important for everybody to pay attention to them and, and to, you know, that the marches have been fantastic, but to really kind of bring it to a personal level, the thing that stuck out to me was when uh, Brianna's aunt, Bianca Austin, said that her son, so Bianca's son, um, a little guy, he used to, whenever he'd see a police car, um, he would say, mommy, mommy, let's go drive up close to the police car. I want to wave. And, you know, he always just wanted to say hi to police. He wanted to to become a policeman. Um, But when when Brianna was, was killed, someone he was close to and loved, now, whenever he sees police officers, he says, mommy, is that the one who killed Brianna? So it was it was just a, a really striking moment for um, a, a case that can seem like so caught up in the legal aspects and the corruption. It's like they're at the heart of this is a family who lost their their beloved family member who was an amazing person with Bianca and Brianna were planning a trip together before she was murdered. These, these were, this was a close knit family. And, and now because of racist, horrible police, she's gone. And this happens time and time again, really devastating. I wanted to uh, turn the conversation to this idea of, I guess you could call it just social media censorship um, and this sort of increasingly narrow framework uh, in terms of what the Internet is allowing people to see these days. I mean, just recently, Twitter outright blocked and hid content uh, with a disclaimer when people were trying to post this New York Post story 
about Hunter Biden's laptop. And Facebook admitted to suppressing the algorithm on it. And it seems like a general escalation in this counter disinformation war that we've been seeing these social media giants engaging in since 2016, basically since the Trump era. Um, but they've never, I mean, Twitter has never outright blocked a posting from an outlet like the New York Post before, to my knowledge. That seems like a, a new stage in this counter disinformation war. You know, even though the origin story of the laptop is sketchy as fuck, the actual emails and the content from it seems real. You know, just like they were trying to say about the 2016 WikiLeaks dumps, uh, the Podesta emails, the DNC leaks, well, I guess those technically came out in 2015, or disinformation, even though they were all real. Seems like they're trying to say the same thing about this, but they're actually just trying to fully cleanse the internet of it. I mean, somebody even tried to post the picture of Hunter Biden uh, smoking a crack pipe in bed as a reply to me the other day. I saw it pop up for a second, and then within like 30 seconds, the posting just said removed for violating Twitter's rules. It was like algorithmically wow. removed. So how do you guys feel about this specific example of Twitter censoring and, you know, and Facebook trying to censor this Hunter Biden story off of their networks, but then also comment on the other things I said about this increasing, you know, push to narrow what we're seeing on these social media networks. Jen, why don't you start? I'm horrified. I'm, I'm terrified. I think I, I haven't checked today or I don't think I checked yesterday, but the last time I looked, the New York Post entire Twitter account was still not active. I think they were suspended or something um, for a week, at least a week. Yeah, the the there was a, a right wing article that came out uh, at the after the seventh day or on the seventh day after the New York Post was was banned from tweeting. So that really is it's more than a slippery slope. Like <laughs> we're full on this. This is a newspaper that is over two hundred years old. It's not you know it's not the National Enquirer. It's it's not wonderful. But it's it's also not, you know, it's it's not the epitome of like it, aliens are stealing babies or whatever. Like it's it's actual news. They they definitely have a right wing spin. It's not something that should be completely censored. And when it comes down to the Hunter Biden story specifically, I agree with you, Robbie. Like the origins of that story are pretty sketchy and strange. And the interviews with the actual computer repair guy are pretty strange. Rudy Giuliani is pretty strange. But when it comes down to it, the Biden camp has not said that these emails are fake. They have not said that the text messages that were just released, I, I think, obtained by the Federalist, uh, they have not said that those are fake. All they've really said is, oh, uh, Joe Biden doesn't have that particular um, meeting with the Ukrainian businessman on his calendar from that time. That's really all they've said. So for the media who has run with all of these insane Russiagate stories, my favorite one <laughs> is the, when they said the, that Russia hacked the Vermont power grid and was like shutting it down, which was completely nonsense. It, it just didn't happen. So this was a few years ago, this came out. Um, and they, they run with stories like that with no issue. They, they run with stories from, you know, unidentified sources all the time, which obviously sometimes they, they need to do depending on the situation journalistically. But 
for social media sites to um, purport to have some kind of knowledge of what is allowed to be shared or okay to be shared is is way way overstepping i this is a, kind of another topic but i kind of feel like these need to be regulated like these can't just be private companies anymore they they have way too much power and influence and this is a case of that because what's going to happen with um when empire files comes out with a, a new uh documentary that they decide is is not acceptable and status quo comes out with some investigative reporting they decide is not acceptable yeah or just mentioning the the biden email the hunter biden emails in a report you know like if you or yeah. empire files does one for example yeah exactly and i you know on another thing that's been um hushed and i wonder what you think about this robbie i'm curious is is the QAnon stuff and q people so i this might make me a hypocrite but i kind of agree with that in certain cases but i've gotten scared of even reporting on it i will continue to do so because they might lump me in with q conspiracy conspiracy totally well we have actually a we're, we're gonna go we're gonna ask you guys about that in a little bit okay but cool. i wanted to i wanted to jump to jordan See how you feel about this, because I've seen you talking about how absurd this censorship is, Jordan. And I know, you know, you you were heavily reporting the 2016, you know, dumps by WikiLeaks at the time and and probably saw similar things from, you know, uh, media elites and, and these pundits trying to push back on those in a similar way. So how do you feel about what's happening now? Well, first of all, I think it's kind of ironic that the same platforms that are now the arbiters of disinformation are, are pushing dis disinformation constantly, like Jen was just talking about those examples. I mean, I don't personally believe that, you know, Twitter hashtags are only based on how many people are tweeting about a certain topic. I mean, Twitter, Facebook, I mean, in Facebook's case, it's been exposed that, you know, their newsfeed in many cases wasn't algorithm, but humans deciding, you know, what was you know, what was higher than other topics. Um, to me, what's the most alarming thing about it is there is no journalist, there's no consistent journalistic vetting anymore. For example, look at two stories, the Hunter Biden story, which bottom line, as, as an actual journalist, and I'm sure you guys agree, I think it speaks volumes that Joe Biden didn't come out strongly saying, I've never met with this Ukrainian official. That's what the emails were about, that he met with a Ukrainian executive from Burisma, and then a year later was pressuring, you know, some, the government in Ukraine to fire this prosecutor, which never made sense to me because, like, why would Joe Biden care about some prosecutor being corrupt in Ukraine? I mean, just on the common sense test, it doesn't make sense. So the fact that there was no there was no smoking gun that the emails were not it's not like a deep fake video that you could pretty quickly realize is not an authentic video. There was no smoking gun that these emails were not were not valid. Joe Biden's campaign gave the classic Washington, D.C. non-answer by saying, well, it's not on the schedule. Uh, we don't see it on the schedule. Well, the mafia doesn't schedule you know, their, <laughs> their meetings either. So, But to me, you look at that story versus like Russian bounties, which was based on like, a, a, you know, your typical one anonymous spook from the CIA, probably. And that's like the number one trender on Twitter. There's no blockage of that story. What? Why? One hurts Trump. One might hurt Biden. And that could easily be reversed. I mean, I said to my audience, think about, you know, hypothetical 2024, two weeks before the Iowa caucus, President Kamala Harris 
is down in the polls to progressive challenger AOC, right? And some story comes out about President Kamala Harris has been, you know, um, you know, abusing her office and making money on the side, blah, blah, blah. Same thing happens. It's blocked. Facebook suppresses it, blah, 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 blah. While, you know, the corporate media go with AOC and college, I don't know, went to a communism protest. I mean, this is the future we're heading to if people who badly want Trump out have blinders on and approve of this type of censorship. Frankly, even if the Biden story is true, I don't particularly care. I mean, yeah, it's not breaking news to me that Joe Biden might be corrupt. He is corrupt. So it's not, to me, the most important thing. As a journalist, yes, we care if it's true, but it's the selective censorship. And then the other quick thing, and I mean, this is for, for people in Silicon Valley, they know this, but a very unwritten about thing is Silicon Valley is part of the revolving door. I mean, a Facebook executive tweeted that, you know, we're, we're suppressing this story. He used to be working for the DC, the DCCC, like there's a Twitter communications person who used to be a spokesperson for Kamala Harris. So like all of this is incestuous. These these platforms that are basically deciding and running the information war are in many cases Democratic Party partisans. So I'm not trying to like defend the right wing and say it's a right wing. It's a liberal conspiracy. But these platforms, they flood uh, Democratic Party donors with money. Chuck Schumer is the high, the top recipient from Facebook. His daughter works at Facebook. So like basically a lot of these platforms that are social media and supposedly just publishers are have a lot of like alumni from the Democratic Party. And it doesn't surprise me that three weeks before the election, a story that yeah we might we should have some skepticism about, but is no more dubious than name your Russiagate story is blocked. And that's dangerous. Right. And it kills me to see people actually defending it, being like, oh, well, start your own Twitter, start your own private company. That's like, it's like, no, dude, these are monopolies. They are, you know, these need to be regulated like public utilities because that's exactly what they've become. And I couldn't agree more with you. I think that this only helps Trump. It really, really does because... This has been a talking point from the right wing that, you know, Trump said himself, like the Silicon Valley tech giants suppress conservative content. And every time you have these sweeping bands of QAnon or stories that are outright censored like this, it just begets that narrative that um, that the liberal media is out to to squash conservative talking points and conservative news and all this shit when really Every time something like this happens, the left um, is also censored. The left is also blocked. You see everyone from Telesur accounts to press TV to, you know, media that simply doesn't agree with the U.S. empire or bow down to U.S. interests just swept off the platform. You saw Antifa accounts swept off Facebook. You even see Burisma um, as one of the funders of the third party fact checker, the Atlantic Council on Facebook. So it's it, it, you cannot make this stuff up. It is cartoonish and it just plays right into that right wing mantra that they are victims. When in reality, we know that the right wing is not challenging the establishment. It really is people who are um, anti-capitalist. Right. But these purges never get covered by the mainstream. It's only the purges on conservative outlets and Trump supporters. And it's extremely harmful. It's extremely harmful. 
Jordan, quickly, do you see these Hunter Biden leaks kind of turning into the new Pizzagate? Because I've seen them take a completely life of their own, like going off, you know, totally off, kind of like how the Podesta leaks turned into this other... (laughs) you know, narrative that became QAnon today and really took away from the serious Clinton Foundation corruption. I don't know if it's going to turn into Pizzagate 2.0, but I think it could turn into Benghazi 2.0. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is, (laughs) I mean, Republicans, I don't like to predict, but let's say the Republicans keep the Senate. Um, I think pretty early on, you could be seeing, you know, impeachment inquiries on Joe Biden. Uh, oh my I, God. I think, you know, let's say let's say the Democrats take everything and Republicans don't have control. I, I still think maybe they won't have power to do anything, but um, I think there's going to be committees and hearings and um, people subpoenaed. And frankly, there might be more legitimacy, too, that there was something wrong here uh, than Benghazi. So I think it's going to be the new talking point. I'm sure Sean Hannity will be going on for four years about it as as the next grift. Um, if it becomes a darker thing that, you know, Hunter Biden was also part of a Chinese pedophile ring, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's what it turned into. But I think <laughs> the right wing, you know, the right wing needs a boogeyman. And, uh, you know, with Hillary, it was Benghazi. And I think with Biden, it will be uh, Hunter and Burisma. Well, I think you're you're absolutely right on that. Uh, and the idea of it turning to the new Benghazi, but also being sort of a roadmap for, you know, different a series of different investigations or even a potential impeachment inquiry. Because I felt that if Hillary did win the 2016 election, that's what the DNC leaks and Podesta emails would have become for the Republicans. They would have maybe even successfully impeached her over them. I mean, who knows? That that it, there was a lot of ammunition there. Uh, you know, for potential impeachment inquiries on her. I also think something really dangerous is I think Barr Biden is in a much different way adopting Trump's fake news and the Democrats version of fake news, Russian disinformation. And I think, yep, you know, he said it during the debate yesterday. There's no zero evidence. This is Russian disinformation. Right. There's, he won't. Even, I don't understand why Trump didn't just point to him. Yes or no. Did you meet with this executive? Put him yeah. on the spot. So yep. like. I'm very worried if Biden becomes president. I mean, how many stories are going to turn into you're spearing me? That's 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 has tentacles of a Russian disinformation plot here. Fifty former CIA people say so that right. are my ambassadors or whatever. So I think that um, it might not that's be a as, disturbing thought. I'm, it might not be like the fascist fake news thing that Trump is doing, but it will have the same effect of keeping us in this post post truth dystopia well no you're exactly right i mean i'm almost imagining something like taking us back to the obama era if all the critical stories that had come out about him from jeremy scahill and grant greenwald were immediately pounced on by the establishment back then as russian disinformation that's kind of how i'm picturing a biden presidency (laughs) playing out in the future and it's it's disturbing to think about just going back to the idea of this this uh, social media censorship and, and how narrow it, it's it's becoming. I mean, in general, it does seem like the left is mostly okay with the idea of deplatforming people as long as they're an abhorrent person, they're a racist, they're an alt-right grifter of some kind. I mean, it's been happening to prominent conspiracy personalities like Alex Jones. The left mostly cheered on his banning from all those services. 
But more recently, we're, we're seeing a full-on blanket ban of QAnon and even going so far as banning it off Discord to the point where people who analyze QAnon from a critical perspective just had their Discord channels removed, like QAnon Anonymous, Patreon oh, wow. actually fully removed all the QAnon uh, people from their thing now. So from my perspective, it seems like a really bad precedent for this blanket banning to be happening to anyone potentially dabbling in these conspiracy narratives because QAnon, as ridiculous as it is, you know, a lot of people in QAnon talk about the deep state, for example. Would you agree that this is also setting, you know, a dangerous precedent? Well, I mean, we've already had several dangerous precedents set in this counter disinformation war. But would you agree this is also dangerous to just have a blanket ban on something like QAnon? And if so, like, what can we do as independent content creators that want to talk about things like the deep state? Or do you think that it actually makes sense to ban this? Yeah, so I'm I'm really conflicted on this. Um, and actually, Jordan and I, when Alex Jones was banned from YouTube, we discussed this as well, like whether we thought that was a slippery slope or not. And, um, you know, the censorship there, but bringing it to modern times where it's it's talking about QAnon being banned all over the place. I I find them so dangerous and so out of their minds and it truly is taking over the Republican Party. I think the last uh, poll I saw was that 50% of Republicans believe at least some portion of QAnon. And I think that's so, so scary. So from from that perspective, it's kind of like, okay, good. So it's not maybe not going to catch on even more. But on the other hand, this could empower them even more because it proves their point. They think the deep state and everyone is out, out to get them and out to censor them. So they will find these, these underground areas. And then there's also the fact that there are conspiracies. You know, they aren't all just theory. <laughs> so we need to be able to, to speak about things that don't seem right uh, in the government or, or with those in power. So to say, like, QAnon is obviously batshit crazy, but there are certain things that the mainstream narrative doesn't accept, that the powers that be don't accept, that do need to be talked about. And especially, you know, independent media is really the only group that is going to talk about those things. So I, I, I think my, you know, my final answer is I think censorship in general is, is really, really horrible and shouldn't happen. Um, when it comes to QAnon, I feel a little bit more hypocritical, but I, I tend toward the side of, of not censoring for sure. I think there's two separate discussions. The first one is I don't think Facebook, Twitter uh, should be the ones deciding this. I think they need to be publicly regulated. And if they are going to make the journalistic decision, because it is a journalistic decision to ban people, then they need to be publicly uh, regulated, period. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I definitely don't know as much about QAnon than Jen. She's just, she's gotten into that maze much more than I. So, but for me, I think there's a difference between QAnon and Alex Jones. And I took some heat on the left when I said I agree with Alex Jones being banned. Because I think when, when someone is inciting violence, uh, not just spewing crazy crap, but basically telling people, you know, go to your go get your guns, meet, meet at the town square, 
yeah, you have freedom of speech, but you don't have freedom to profit off that speech on public, you know, on, uh, for private companies, right? He could, he could do it on his website if he wants, but he doesn't, if he's going to actively be inciting violence, which, I mean, I've heard him incite violence, then I absolutely don't think that should be permitted. Uh, and whether it's YouTube deciding or the government regulating, um, there has to be a line for people that are inciting violence. Uh, but QAnon, I mean, I think it's crazy, but who determines? Should we ban the flat earthers from Twitter and Facebook too? I mean, yeah. which which conspiracy right. which conspiracy groups are so crazy and so deranged that we ban them, but others uh, we don't. And I also think Jen kind of alluded to it, but that becomes a slippery slope because what happens to the conspiracies that have a tinge of truth? They might be unfairly attacked and, and banned. So I think Jen has uh, definitely looked into it more than I. I think there's really troubling elements of QAnon. I think many of the people, including one I interviewed the other day, are genuinely misinformed and disturbed. Um, but I don't think it should be banned because there's plenty of crazy stuff on the Internet. As long as QAnon doesn't elevate to Proud Boy status, where there's plenty of chatter about plots and plotting things and that kind of thing, um, you know, people have a right to be crazy. And I don't think that should be boxed out because it will blow back on us on the left, like like Abby referred to. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. Well, let's wrap up the show by going back to the election. Jordan, I know that we've briefly talked about this. Um, why do you think it's been so difficult for people in kind of our media circles to just criticize Trump? I mean, it seems like he's been given somewhat of a pass by many, many figures. I am not just talking about one person. I'm talking about the majority of people in our media sphere, I feel like, harps on the Democratic Party. And I get why, right? We've been talking about how reprehensible they've been. We've been talking about the system that bred Trump, that's given us Trump. Of course, that's important to criticize. Of course, the problem is not just Trump. He's simply the cancerous tumor that's arisen out of the cancer, right? I get that. Um, but as a leftist, I am repulsed by Trump and everything he represents, especially going back to the fomenting of civil war against the left. Jen, do you have any comments on this? Because you guys have been really great. You've been criticizing everyone. You've been out there covering everything. And you've been kind of the model media of what I, I would hope to see a lot more of. And I just wanted to see what you thought about why, you know, it's so it's kind of an aberration right now. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because I've noticed the same thing. It's almost like there are certain certain people, certain figures who maybe have built their their following criticizing Democrats, uh, which is fine, as you say, like there's more than enough to criticize when it comes to the Democrats. But it almost in certain cases looks to be protective of of Trump and his horrible record, the, the horrible things he does and says, um, his tendency towards fascism. It, it just doesn't get mentioned. I think on a like on a practical level for status quo, we made the decision, you know, we're we're going to report the truth and, and cover the news and 
we're not going to hold back like based on party or anything like that. We're just simply going to report what is happening. That's what a journalist is supposed to do. We're very clear that we're progressive, you know, we're Bernie supporting type democratic socialists, but we report the truth and we report what's out there, which includes criticizing Trump and being very clear about how dangerous Trump is. And I don't see as a leftist how you can ignore Trump or or not call him out. So I, I too, am, am really baffled by that and, and disturbed by that, honestly. Yeah, I think that, you know, the bottom line is if your house is in fire in front of you, you got to put out the fire before figuring out <laughs> what caused it. And yeah. uh, devil's advocate, some might say, but Jordan, the Democrats caused the fire just as much. I don't really think any objective person could look at Biden versus Trump. And as bad as Biden is, I mean, I'd rather deal with the corporate warmonger, which they all are, than the lunatic psychopath walking, you know, taking joy reads around Walter Walter Reed with COVID, um, separating children, separating children at the border. Um, God knows, you know, he says he's joking, but joking about serving more than two terms. I mean. It has no end if he gets reelected. We don't truly know Donald Trump, unshackled by thought of reelection, what he could do. I also think he has delusions of grandeur. And mm-hmm. I do think that there are, uh, you know, some figures. I know your audience would want me to name drop. I don't, you know, I don't want to get into a, a dramatic thing. But I do think there are some figures in progressive media that kind of get caught up in, you know, the, the subscriber count, the Twitter followers and their bread and butter, like Jen said, has been. Um you know, growing, uh, attacking the Democratic Party. And I, you know, I took a risk. I told my audience like two weeks ago, listen, I've been crapping on Joe Biden now for a year and I'm voting for him. You do what you want. I'm not telling you how to vote, but I've come to the decision. That's what I have to do. And I took a lot of heat. I think there's like a Reddit thread attacking. There's it now. Yeah, there's a Reddit thread like yelling about Jordan's vote. Is there a status coup subreddit? <laughs> no, this was just on a, like the way of the bird. Okay, yeah, you probably they are always bad idea to have a subreddit though. It's always back like comes back to haunt you. Yeah, the truth is, I think there's a word that uh, unfortunately a lot of the left uh, has lost, and it's called nuance. Two things can be mm-hmm. true. Two things mm-hmm, can be yep. true. And the truth is, um, I'm not delusional. I'm not jumping on, you know, the Young Turks is sending out fundraisers. Hey, let's get rid of Trump. And then we move Biden left. You're not moving Biden anywhere. You'll be lucky yeah. if you'll be lucky if you avoid him moving further right. Um, that's not going <laughs> to happen. But I really think that, um, unfortunately, and a lot of it is, you know, good faith. People are desperate on the left and and hopeless. And, you know, they've had two exhilarating cycles with Bernie. And this time they really, you know, we thought we were like on the five yard line, almost there. And and it seems like it was ripped away from us. So people are, you know, anger and cynicism kind of seeps in. And I think people have kind of lost perspective that there's a really dangerous person in the White House. Biden's dangerous in a different way. But at the end of the day, again, if your house is on fire, put it out and then we'll figure out the source. And I think that too many uh, progressive media and just Twitter, you know, uh, knuckleheads mm-hmm. um, just don't realize that. And it, it becomes exhausting. And I'm exhausted because I, I just said 
honestly, for me, it was seeing Trump taking that joy ride because I was going to write Bernie in. But mm-hmm. seeing Trump taking that joy ride, uh, endangering Secret Service agents, like his just sheer insanity of doing that and then walking up the uh, stairs with taking off his mask. I mean, this is like you couldn't write this in a James Bond villain. I mean, it's just crazy. And I, I really hope some sanity comes back because I think on the progressive end of things, we've kind of gotten to this cycle that if you're not as fire breathing as me against the Democrats and you're not as hardcore as me, you're a sellout. And I just think that's yeah. kind of ridiculous thinking. Yeah, Jordan and I came to the decision to kind of at the same time. I was also going to write Bernie in. Then when RBG died, you know, thinking of the, the potential and the future of a 7-2 Supreme Court, like that's really terrifying. And then, uh, yeah, the, the fact his insanity surrounding COVID, it, it's just it's so obscene. Um, and even though I am in a blue state now, I just can't stomach doing anything other than doing whatever I need to do, voting for Biden, not loving it, not liking Biden. I don't like Biden. Again, there's that nuance. People think, okay, if someone's voting for Biden, they must be a, a Biden fan. It's not it at all. So I um, I think, too, that when it comes to the media sources and the people that that well-meaning folks pay attention to, it's a, it, they have to be really, really careful. They're Certainly just because someone um, hangs their their hat or their shingle, whatever the saying is, as a progressive commentator or a progressive journalist, it doesn't mean that they have the best interest of journalism at heart or of the, the people at heart. So I think, too, there's people who are in this just to kind of grift. Well, I'm, I'm going to call some motherfuckers out. I mean, <laughs> okay, honestly, <good. laughs> a lot of what's bizarre to me is a lot of the people who were Tulsi Gabbard surrogates like Nico House or Tim Canova, yes. people like that have literally become indistinguishable from like MAGA people. And that's really 100%. an interesting trend that I've seen. Um, and it and it kind of just like, it's the same playbook every time. And I find that absolutely fascinating because it's like you cannot even purport to be a leftist if you literally have not talked about Trump once <laughs> during this entire election cycle. It's just like, what is going right. on here? But um, I don't know, Robbie, if you had anything to add there. Yeah, I mean, I guess my point of view on it is I just I try very, very hard not to engage in any form of vote shaming. So if like someone wants like I see this, all these people engaging in this almost like a pissing contest. Yeah. for Like I think Jordan said, like who hates the Democrats the most? It becomes sort of this race to like, you know, be the one that hates the Democrats the most, who's a so-called progressive. But at the end of the day, it's just like. You know, that almost becomes a form of vote shaming in and of itself, because if you're like, I got to vote for Biden this time because that's how much I I loathe Trump and I'm terrified of him. I mean, that's so that's you should respect that, you know, just similarly, like you should respect someone for voting third party and there should be no vote shaming in that, you know, especially if you live in a state that's gone blue, you know, for the last, you know, several decades like California or something like that. So I guess that's mostly my take on it. But back to what Abby said about sort of the Tulsi surrogacy. I mean, some of those people, I mean, it's, it's not even necessarily that I think that they're like indistinguishable from MAGAs, but if you look at who their audience is, like look at all their Twitter replies, it's pretty self-evident that they're not courting any actual leftists anymore. It's just all either Tulsi people or like Trump people who are like, 
you know, man, I really respect you because you don't shit on the MAGA people. Like you understand the value of like collaboration and all this. It's like, it just, it just becomes this thing where it's like, well, obviously they're not even reaching to any leftists anymore. And that's fine. I, mean, just became, I just became a MAGA hero the other day because I tweeted out. <laughs> oh my God. The, the Hunter Biden story shouldn't be censored. I've never. I saw some of those replies. Yeah. Oh my God. People, yeah, Fox people can't News wrote it. an entire article around Jordan's Oh my tweet. God, I love it. The Epstein thing to me is a really <laughs> funny example of that because anytime you do tweet like an Epstein picture of him with Clinton or him with Trump, people from the other side are like will always blast you with like a picture from the opposing side or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, come on, like this is what the, you know, the thing I like about status quo because you guys never, you know, leaned into that thing where you you've always been fairly balanced i mean i know you're not trying to be fair and balanced but you've have gone after <laughs> yeah. both you've gone after the president in power and the democrats in ample measure so you know that's something i think a lot of people have lost sight of um in the, the last four years unfortunately i also think there's something to be said and abby has this in in droves but of course i don't belittle uh commentators for not being in the field and and being in the trenches, there's room for everybody and commentary has its own place. But, you know, if you're not out there seeing up close, you know, Abby on the foreign end, us on the domestic end, if you're not seeing up close the damage, uh, you become a little jaded. I mean, a lot of these commentators, Mm -hmm. frankly, even though they're progressive and we agree on a lot of issues, you know, they live on the coasts, they're doing relatively decent and, you know, there's there's a level of privilege that, you know, some of them are, are, are doing better than others. But there's a level of privilege where you could think like, well, yeah, Trump's bad, but Democrats are worse. But if you're actually out there and you're at these Trump rallies, if you're at these Black Lives Matter rallies, if you're seeing the racism, the Islamophobia, the conspiracy uh, stuff going on, I don't know any person in their right mind that could think like, yeah, Trump, you know, Trump's worse on the margins. I mean, it's not on the margins. It's it's much, much worse. And I think yeah. for me, that's why I could never just be a commentator. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I would always have to be mixing it with the in the field because you become disconnected from what's really going on. And I've been covering for years, like Democratic, I mean, Flint, Democratic uh, corruption, there's Democratic corruption everywhere. But we're just talking about right now the, the highest office in the land. And I think if you're not out there, I mean, I remember when I was at the Young Turks, Jimmy had mentioned he went to a few Trump rallies and he was like, holy shit, I had no idea it was this bad. (laughs) So it (laughs) really, really takes um, being out there in some cases to 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 realize that it it, to not think in this false equivalency way. Um, And I think, you know, if you lose if you lose progressive cred for quote unquote selling out, so be it. I mean, I'm more interested in the planet surviving and the country surviving. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, frankly, there are some people and don't even get me started on Nico House. I got stories. But oh, boy. <laughs> stories for days. There, 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 are, there, are, there are charlatans and the lines yeah. between who's a journalist and who's like a, a, an activist grifter pretending to be one are, are sometimes people don't see. I think one of my I, I don't know if it was Jen or you who mentioned this, but one of my really the moment that really sort of changed my thinking on all this was I, I think when I watched the Trump family sit down at the debate and remove their masks. And when I heard about that little mask protest they did at the de- first debate, um, I was just like, wow, he's really, Trump is really doubling down on his 
apparent COVID views. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just ultimately just very disturbing. I guess to close this discussion out, I wanted to ask you guys, you know, we haven't really talked about this concept of foreign interference. We've talked a lot about this, you know, counter disinformation war that all these think tankers and, and different pundits have gotten involved in now. Um, and then we also see a repeat again of these so-called intelligence professionals writing these letters saying that they're all going to vote for Biden. And, 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 and that sort of ties back to what Jen said, that that only seems to reinforce this concept that the deep state is against Trump. Because how, is, how do they think that's going to convince anybody um, to not vote for Trump? I mean, that didn't really seem to work the last time around. But, right. but now we're sort of seeing, you know, we're getting a revival of this idea that Russia and Iran and China are all interfering with the election this time around. Not just stealing voter data, which was one story, but also that Iran was somehow behind this this um, mass mailing uh, sent to all these Florida voters, allegedly from Proud Boys. But yeah. now the media is saying, and you know, apparently they got this from intelligence officials, that it actually was from Iranian state actors. I mean, what the fuck is actually going on here? Did someone, I mean, someone did send out those pr Proud Boys emails. Maybe it wasn't the Proud Boys, but I mean, Iran? Uh, so what is your take right. on that story and then just all these different narratives being leaked out by intelligence figures again that China and Russia are heavily interfering and are somehow, you know, trying to tip the needle of the election. I mean, and this also, again, ties back to Internet censorship because th that's all sort of the same milieu of reasons why we need to, you know, derank things or censor things. So I don't know, Jen, why don't you uh, go first on that? The whole thing with the the Proud Boys emails that were being sent out, for those who don't know, there were these really weird, threatening emails um, sent to, well, the ones that I saw were sent to Democrats, at least. And so they were basically threatening them if they didn't vote for Trump. They're like, we have access to all of your information. If you don't vote for Trump, then we'll know about it. So they were, they have, they were these ominous emails. So then later it came out, I, I think it was what Ratcliffe came out, um, a few days ago and said, Iran and Russia are interfering in our election and on and on. And we think, you know, Iran, or we, I don't know if they said we know, but I think they said Iran is um, the one who are the ones who were sending out these false emails. So my immediate thought was, oh, we must we must really want to go to war with Iran. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have evidence that Ratcliffe was like talking out of his ass, but it sort of seemed like they were trying to throw something out there that they know has worked in the past to sow doubt. And one of the other reasons I'm very suspicious is because they, they said uh, that it was against Trump, like Iran was working against Trump and for Joe Biden, which doesn't make any sense when you see the um, supposed Proud Boys emails that were sent out because they were pushing for Trump. So I think the whole thing is, is really messy and didn't make much sense. Um, I don't know as a whole how I feel about the, the foreign interference thing. It's a reality 
that Russia tries to interfere in elections and in our elections. That's just true. I mean, historically, like the active measures and and our country does it too. We interfere all over the world. That's not a secret. But we also have these very covert um, ways of, of interfering as well. So it is not out of the realm of possibility. I think you, you could take like any year, uh, any election year and say, oh, look, Russia tried to interfere because that would just be true. Um, the, what they've turned it into is this complete monster that doesn't, that left the the realm of reality a long time ago. So I found it really interesting, um, that it seems like like the Trumpers are maybe trying to do sort of the same thing. I might have a controversial tank take that, uh, I I know resistance Twitter would just melt down. Um, (laughs) I frankly, I frankly don't care. I don't give a damn about foreign interference, um, because I think on the scale of actual consequential interference in American elections, it's not even close. Domestic interference yeah. is number one. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about interference? Bernie Sanders was 10 days away from clinching the Democratic nomination. OK, he was on 60 Minutes and got the Cuba question. And then CNN, all of these outlets for days are attacking him on Cuba and then uh, all the ducks line in a row. Biden gets uh, Buttigieg to drop out, Klobuchar to drop out, CNN, air, CNN, MSNBC air in full, a full Biden rally with Klobuchar, Pete, Beto comes out of retirement. Uh, there was an advertising agency that the New York Times reported said Biden in three days got $100 million in free advertising from the corporate media between his victory in Super tu- uh, South Carolina and uh, Super Tuesday. The exit polls show nearly half of the people who voted for Biden decided in those final days. So, of course, like, I'm not cheering for Russia or anyone to quote-unquote interfere, but I mean, from Correct the Record and their army of digital trolls to endless Super PAC ads that are disinformation run amok and money-polluting politics, Nobody the seems freaking to, Lincoln project. Right. Nobody seems to care about this interference, which is actual consequential while they're crying that Russia created fake Facebook pages and allegedly hacked the DNC, which I still see no evidence for. I mean, it's ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. And honestly, I mean, Robbie, you know the history. This goes back to like the 1940s and 50s. You know, they were saying the Vietnam protesters were, you know, arms of Russia. MLK was yeah. Russia. I mean, it's a joke. It really is. Like Russia, I was in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, extensively in 2016. Trump rallies. Trust me, Russia wasn't even in the top 10 of reasons. It was NAFTA. (laughs) It was TPP. It was the closed down factories. It was they bought this phony populist act. So I think, you know, on the grand scheme of things, interference from other countries. It's made into this boogeyman by cable news outlets, who, by the way, their audience is in that demographic that got, you know, came up during the Cold War and still thinks Russia is the boogeyman. But I think it's laughable to think that the real interference in elections come from other countries rather than our corporate media. Yeah. And it's, it's, that reminds me of, uh, Ravi, when they put Abby's show in that um, intelligence report, like yeah. their examples of <laughs> of Russian interference are are 
really crazy. And the the uh, like Facebook ads that they came out with, what it was like a a buff version of of Trump or something ridiculous, like the, the that got seen by ten people. Their examples are are absurd. I mean, they put Lee Camp in the category of Russian Russian disinformation, and like all he does is just domestic. I mean, he does some foreign stuff, but most of it's domestic. And I've never seen anything that I thought uh, was questionable fact or fact uh, on the facts. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think it's great that Russia would be trying these things. But like, go talk to Matt Taibbi. We literally rigged the 1996 election for Boris Yeltsin. I mean, so we're so wonderful. I mean, Trump was right in some cases when he said, like, we do it, we do it all over the country. I mean, the truth is they tried to make this into a Cold War espionage thriller, when in reality, Trump just likes authoritarian dictators like Putin. He also, frankly, was probably reserving uh, for his business because Donald Trump Jr. openly said, yeah, we get a lot of our business, if not our top clients, are Russian oligarchs buying properties in America. So it's just like the whole thing is ridiculous. And frankly, the scary thing is if Trump, in this case, it would be an upset, wins re-election, we're going to have another four and a half years of Russia did it again. And it just, it just has no end. It has no yeah. end. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the most important things to, to focus on here is the idea of scale. I mean, because, of course, different foreign countries are trying to meddle. And also, there's probably a lot of other foreign countries that are as well, like Israel. We definitely know that they, you know, did things during the 2016 election that was actually made in the Mueller report that you barely hear about in the media. Weird communications with Roger Stone talking about October surprises that they knew were coming, so things like that. But and then also just the idea of corporate, you know, not even just the corporate media, but corporations and the things that they do, you know, to influence elections and all these different PACs. So it is sort of bizarre how this this is just be basically a giant distraction. They all want us to look at this idea of foreign meddling when we already know all this domestic quote unquote meddling is way a way bigger deal and has a way bigger impact. I think we're meddling just a tad more, you know, occupying countries. I would say we're, yeah. we're meddling a little bit more than Russia. Yeah, I would well, say so. Well, if these people so care too. so much about Russia, why aren't they up in arms, these resistance libs? Why aren't they up in arms about the fact that a woman fainted in line after waiting for six hours to early vote the other day? You know, that, that all, that there's true voter suppression all around that, that impacts, you know, lower income and uh, minority folks. Like, why don't they care? That impacts our elections much, much more. And that's also part of why the whole I think that the focus on the post office, even though I think some of that was definitely true while it was happening, was kind of ultimately a red herring because of what you just said. It's like it, it it's like those are ultimately the long standing issues that happen during every election that are just left unaddressed because they benefit, you know, the people in power and the elite. So um it's just sort of that same it just sort of rinse and repeat, I guess. Uh but I guess that's all the questions I really had for you guys. Um, you know, I, maybe we, I could leave you two with any final thoughts um, if you wanted to say anything about the election or anything else we've discussed today uh, before we go. 
this has been 2020, as everyone says, has just been the craziest year. And I think that so many people are disenchanted with pretty much everything right now. Obviously, we have coronavirus. We have an insane president. Um, economically, people are, are not doing well for obvious reasons. And it's really put this country into a depression. I mean, rates of mental health um, issues are skyrocketing. It's really, really scary. So I think what I kind of want to leave people with is it's, it is scary and it is horrible and so many horrible things are going on here, but there is good and there is hope and there's, you know, Abby and Robbie, um, status coup, bringing you, bringing you the news and, um, shining a light on things that, that need a spotlight. So kind of keep your, keep your head up. It's going to be a, a bumpy ride towards the election. I have a feeling and end after the election, who knows when the election will actually be over. So, uh, thanks for having us on Robbie and, and Abby with her baby. <laughs> um, we really enjoyed it. Oh, you guys are great. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, really appreciate uh, being on. I would just say that, you know, whether it's status coup, um, empire files, media roots, uh, other progressive outlets, particularly those that kind of present you new information rather than only, you know, commenting on already known information, uh, definitely continue to expand your palette because if you don't, your news palette, because if you don't, you're going to just be another person that becomes numb that the most important thing is Russia or, or mm -hmm. Comey or whatever. Um, I mean, the bottom line is Flint six and a half years later does not have clean water. Um, Native American reservations as we speak, Trump his I mean, it hasn't been covered that much, but he's trying to drill right through Native American reservations. I mean, there's a lot of standing rocks nobody knows about right now. Um, and building his, his wall through their reservations. Right. Jen. Uh, at the border. Yeah. Jen covered that uh, near the border. I mean, there's so many stories. There's so many other black men uh, being murdered that we don't know their names. Uh, gentrification uh, and the Jeff Bezoses of the world just literally continuing to push people out of their communities. The explosion and homelessness all over the country. I mean, I could go on. And these stories are not sexy. Uh, frankly, for status quo, I mean, Jen and I are never going to become rich covering these stories because they're not the ones that trend. Um, but they're, they are the most important stories because I think people, when they follow the horse race and they think it, only Trump matters or only, uh, you know, the hot topic of the day matter, uh, you lose sight of all the suffering and all the micro corruption going on all over the country. So, um, and you guys do a great job on the foreign end. Uh, show, I, I learned a lot of stuff from you too. So uh, just keep supporting independent media. Uh, check us out on YouTube. Uh, we're on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash status coup. And um, buckle up because it's not like we're going to get a little vacation after the election. I think it's going to be rocky, <laughs> rocky road uh, right after. Absolutely. And, is there anywhere else um, that people can find both of your work or, and how they uh, can support you online? You mentioned your YouTube channel, Status Coup. Um, where are you guys on Twitter and uh, other places? So we're at Status Coup on Twitter. Um, Jordan is at Jordan Sheridan. I'm at Jen with two N's, Jen Elizabeth J on Twitter. Um, as far as how you can support us, we... Our, our model is we take no, no corporate dirty cash. 
we are viewer funded, viewer supported. Um, without our viewers, we wouldn't have been able to break our major Flint story. We wouldn't be able to get all over the country covering the things that we cover. So if you are able to at all, um, you can join Status Coup's membership at statuscoup.com slash join. We have uh, a great Discord for members, which is kind of like a forum if you are not familiar. And we have um, Ask Me Anything member calls with Jordan and myself. We have behind the scenes reporting, behind the scenes videos, video diaries where we take you behind the scenes. So a lot of stuff comes with your membership. And we, you know, we know times are tough, but if you uh, can swing the five bucks a month, it, it helps with real investigative and infield reporting. Again, that's statuscoup.com slash join. And then definitely subscribe to our YouTube. We are on our way to 100,000 subscribers. YouTube is throttling us like crazy. So definitely subscribe uh, to our YouTube. Awesome. Well, you guys both do great work. <laughs> and um, I've been following... I've been following your work for a long time. So, um, yeah, uh, thank you so much again for, for coming on Media Roots Radio. And let's definitely do it again at some point. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. It was so great talking to you. Um, love your work, and we'll, we'll speak soon. Thanks, Robbie and Abby. Thanks so much, you guys. Hi, this is Robbie again. If you liked what you heard on today's episode of Media Roots Radio, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber of ours for as little as $5 a month. Patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. This gives you exclusive access to one bonus episode per month. And right now, we're doing a multi-part podcast series that is now 15 hours long called The Freemasonic History of the United States. And stay tuned for a special 10-year anniversary live stream episode of Media Roots Radio, which is happening October 30th, Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That'll be with me and Abby. Thanks again, everybody. Take care.